keine Sehnsucht, kann keine Stille. Wenn die Träume sich auch erfüllen, wenn du viel hast, willst du noch mehr. Oh, Mama Mia. Hello, listeners. I'm David Blakesley, and this is episode 84 of Criterion Reflections the podcast in which I and a rotating cast of guests and friends sit around to discuss the chronological succession of the Criterion Collection, uh, all the films in the Criterion Collection in the original order of their chronological release. Uh, so today we are landing in late 1971 with the director and perhaps the personality that we will probably be discussing more than any other on uh, this podcast, uh, unless it goes for years and years and years, but uh Owing to his prolific nature and just uh, his way of injecting himself into the conversation, none other than Reiner Werner Fassbinder, uh, the great but uh, very dynamic and short-lived German director, as we talk about The Merchant of Four Seasons. This is a very pivotal film in his career, his filmography. Uh, we've already discussed all of the films in the early Fassbinder set that has been released by the Eclipse series and is also available on the Criterion channel. Uh, we're here shifting into this new phase of Fassbinder's career, kind of when he made what you might consider sort of his staple standout masterpieces, uh, at least for those who are aficionados of his work. So I've got a couple good friends and uh, very esteemed colleagues here to talk about this film with me and uh, as we continue on our journey into the work of Reiner Werner Fassbender. So let's start with uh, Robert Taylor. Robert, good evening. Thank you for joining me again. Good evening, David. I am so happy to be here to discuss that seminal masterpiece, A Man for All Seasons. <laughs> okay um maybe we need to do a little editing there <laughs> a little a man for all seasons well a merchant of four seasons i guess in the uh, translation there's a rough equivalency there is that, wait uh, this I, isn't about <laughs> thomas moore no no this is about hans epp the uh, distinguished peddler of pears and plums <laughs> i i enjoy fruity things so i will i will be along for the ride regardless <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> i'm very fine to have you on board robert so let's uh let's hear what you have to say and hopefully you can uh reshuffle your uh your comments as we uh maybe <laughs> have have to uh, reorient uh your your bearings tonight uh also joining me uh it's not been too long since i talked with you jordan but it's been a little bit since you've been on the program here uh jordan esso welcome back to criterion reflections thank you very much it's always great to be here Yes, we are fresh off a recording of La Ventura, uh, kind of another series that we're kicking off on the main episodes here on Criterion Cast. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to re-listening re to that. I know it is available for our Patreon supporters in the raw, unedited form. Um, I haven't availed myself of that listen yet, but uh, definitely looking forward to getting it out there on the wider feed for everybody to check out as we get into the works of Antonioni and that uh, Alienation Trilogy. Yeah, it'll be out soon. Excellent. Well, okay, well, let's turn our eyes towards Fassbender then, Merchant of Four Seasons. It's uh, kind of his um, return to cinema after this lengthy nine-month hiatus that he apparently took 
between the end of 1970 and uh, the spring, perhaps, maybe summer of 1971. Uh, this is a guy who was used to knocking out films over a co course of a couple of weeks. You know, he'd get a script together. He was all, often working on multiple projects at the same time. He'd queue everything up, get his actors out there. They'd just, you know, slam it out and put it up on screen, and, and he kept doing his thing. I think this is... I've, I've read some counts saying this is his seventh film, others that say this is his twelfth. Uh, even the last one we talked about, uh, Beware of a Holy Whore, uh, I think there was another film uh, that came out between that one and this one. Uh, so, you know, just again, the, the abundance of material that Fassbender was putting out, and yet, uh, at least for him at this stage of his career, kind of uncharacteristically took a, a bit of time off and kind of recalibrated, recalculated what he was about as a filmmaker. Uh, the story goes that he saw a uh, kind of a retrospective showing in Munich, the films of Douglas Sirk, a German-born uh, Hollywood director. He left Germany, I think, probably right around the time that the Nazis came to power, or at least before things got really hot in the late 1930s, before the war itself broke out. Of course, Douglas Sirk had a pretty distinguished career. Criterion has released several of his films. And uh, we'll be invoking the name of Douglas Sirk, I'm sure, quite a bit as we get moving ahead in Fassbinder's um, kind of melodrama phase, where he's taking some of the punky, rowdy, uh, you know, kind of confrontational sensibilities of his early films, uh, but also trying to couch that message in a way that is... Uh, you know, kind of meeting the needs and expectations of a more mainstream audience by uh, casting characters that are perhaps more representative of the middle class life, the more of the everyman rather than the kind of renegade outlaw, you know, shady criminal side of things that kind of was the focus of his earlier films. Uh, so I'm very interested to hear, uh, Robert and Jordan, what you guys have to say about this film. Uh, I enjoyed it, although it's not exactly a, you know, cheerful pick-me-up type of movie um i've kind of given my little summary uh, robert you want to kind of launch into kind of your opening take on this film and we'll uh, just kind of kick the conversation from there well in 1500 no i'll stop now um so uh <laughs> i thought the movie was thank you for the mercy laugh guys is that a swipe at yeah. me robert <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, so I feel like the when I was watching the movie, I didn't like it that much. The more that I have thought about it since I've watched it, the more I became fine with it. I think it's interesting. I don't think it succeeds at everything it wants to achieve. But I did not dislike it. Uh, that said, David, I think this is the third Fassbender that we've done together. Is that correct? I, you know, I, I had intended to kind of go through my previous episodes to tally all this up, but I'll, I'll take your word for it. Yeah, we uh, did American Soldier and Beware mm -hmm. a Holy Whore, and okay. I liked both of those more. Um, so mm -hmm. I find it odd that this is normally considered a huge, huge turning point in his career. But like I said, I think it's fine. There's plenty to talk about, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. <laughs> I think your response very much mirrors my own i watched this film when it first came out i think in 2015 on blu-ray and it's like okay that's interesting and of course i was much more deeply familiar with fassbender's early work but i i kind of had that same kind of all right it's okay but it, it has definitely grown on me as i've kind of thought about it and certainly in this revisit so i'll have more to say about that 
momentarily, but let's go ahead and get Jordan into the conversation. I have decided that I love this film. I yeah. saw it initially when it first came out on Blu-ray as well, and I didn't I didn't love it. I liked things about it, but I think specifically like the the wife beating scene like just had such a chilling effect on me that I wasn't really able to appreciate some of the other parts of the film that I think really do shine on a second viewing for me. Like mm-hmm. it's a great example of a film succeeding um, not because of what it's about, but because of the way it's about it. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way of putting it. I mean, this is not a story that is especially appealing. Um, it's, you know, perhaps relatable in some ways, uh, depending on kind of your walk in life and kind of where you fall in the, the social and ca- uh, cast, uh, not cast, but class structure, uh, your own per- perhaps where you fit into your family dynamics, you know, are you uh, embraced and supported by your family? Are you regarded as a bit of a black sheep or a you know, kind of a bit of uh, underachiever. Well, you know, maybe maybe there are some personal lines of connection with the with the central story here, but overall, these are not really likable characters. You know, uh, there's nobody that I really kind of felt a special bond with as far as who I'm pulling for. Uh, it's kind of a sad sack tale all the way around. Um, anybody want to kind of give us a little synopsis of what the story's about? I'm able to. If anybody else would like to take that on, go for it. Sure, I, I can do it. Oh, oh, you you go, Jordan. How about I do the beginning, Robert, and you do the ending? This is very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, okay. So it's just, essentially, it's about a husband and wife who are fruit merchants in 1950s Munich. He's a broken man whose mother withheld love and acceptance and... And he has a, I'm not sure over how many years, but like he is a veteran of the French Foreign Legion. He's also an ex-police officer. And now he's settled into this career and life as a fruit merchant and has also become an alcoholic at the same time. Him and his wife have tensions over what we don't quite first understand is, you know, how much he is stepping outside of the marriage. Um, but he feels, there's a sense in which he feels very claustrophobic and one night after uh, a long drunken evening he comes home and viciously beats his wife named Ermagard and his name is Hans and at that point she decides she's going to leave him and when in his attempt the following day to uh, f- have some some semblance of re reuniting she still isn't interested and he seems to like will a heart attack into being and this <laughs> this sets up you know the the next chapters of their of their marriage he's told that he can't work lift he can't even drink alcohol like the the very things that i think it's very clear he's used to kind of define what manhood he can indulge in he doesn't feel like um much of a man uh, his family his mother in particular but his family kind of treats him like he's you know not only less classy than they are but just not really quite a whole person and he's also short i think the fact that he is short in stature is something that the the filmmaking is interested in and then robert you want to pick it up from there well then we have this wonderful little like side subplot about the intricacies of fruit merchantry and (laughs) how much the they decide to hire a new employee to uh help out with the business 
first employee doesn't quite work out. Second employee turns out to be a guy that the wife had sex with when the husband, uh, when she was very mad at her husband. So then it turns, it, that's when it really leans into the Circean. Uh, and everything blows up. He learns about his wife's uh, infidelities, which he was also cheating, so whatever. Um, and he falls into a deep pit of depression and ultimately drinks himself to death. And I don't mean that as a metaphor. He literally sits at a table and drinks himself to death. Yeah, and then there's a little funeral scene. I, I guess I'll wrap the synopsis up with a bit of a coda there after he passes away. Uh, you know, one piece we didn't really touch on there is that he has this kind of unrequited love. There's this uh, woman who uh, is one of his customers, actually. She lives in one of these apartment blocks where he hawks his, his wares. And uh, there's a couple of different encounters that they have where you can tell that he would love to go in and consummate a relationship with her or to fulfill this fantasy this this dream this ideal he has of her as this great love of his life but uh his own weakness his own conflictedness and just his dissolution kind of prevent him from actually realizing that it's like the moment has passed it's too late uh, but she does show up kind of in the in the wings there at his funeral and uh you know, there's a little bit of a kind of a denouement where the the widow uh Ermgard and their daughter Renata who's kind of an interesting kind of eyewitness to many of the key events in this film uh are there with the the hired hand Harry uh who turns out to be uh, Hans's ex-soldier kind of uh, colleague comrade there as well as the guy that had been brought in kind of through you know serendipity to to help run the, the this family business and it looks like Ermgard and Harry are going to get together Harry kind of neutrally declares that her proposal to him is okay <laughs> instant fade to black not even the end just like nothing the film is absolutely over at that moment and we're kind of left wondering well what was that all about so yeah let me just go back to then uh, after we've kind of um you know, capsulized the plot. Is this an entertaining film? Uh, it, you know, I think Robert and I both thought, you know, it's it's interesting. There's kind of an artifact nature here as uh, Fassbinder, clearly a very important, very accomplished, very fascinating uh, artistic creator is doing some new things. But there are also a lot of through lines. This didn't seem to me like he was radically breaking away from that kind of um, punky, belligerent sensibility of his early films. Uh, but to me, it feels like you can take this movie either two ways. You can read it as a sort of a straightforward narrative of you know characters that we're supposed to somehow empathize with and feel like, oh, wow, isn't this just tragic? You know, this poor, understood man, misunderstood man with this henpecking wife, uh, this cold fish mother, these judgmental siblings. Uh, he just wants to be a, a, an earthy man who works with his hands, does physical labor, and nobody respects that. Everybody wants him to become this bourgeois middle-class guy, and it all ends tragically. And, and, and if, to me, it seems like if you're going to take the story on that level this film's gonna kind of flop a little bit because the 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 stakes of wouldn't it be nice if Hans had a happier life to me don't really seem all that significant I, my my through line or my 
approach into this film to where maybe I get closer to where Jordan's at of, of loving this is is how these kind of archetypal characters are portrayed and we are brought into kind of a state of reflection on just any number of dynamics and relationships that exist uh, within culture. We can look at the German lens and kind of the, the mid-50s and the post-war re you know habilitation of germany and and its ongoing problems with denial and you know uh, finding solace and economics and status and prosperity uh, blocking out the atrocities of <laughs> still living memory that so many people had lived through um, and you can also just get into fassbender's uh, use of his cast his characters and and how it's all put together and i think to me that's that's a much more interesting angle so uh, jordan let me ask you you know you, you say you love this movie why don't you elaborate on that a little bit and tell us what are some of the things that kind of resonate with you well i do think that you can read han's struggle as in some way representing the damaged german psyche you know the collective guilt that reverberates through all of german society after the two world wars but i don't i don't think that's where i get off on this film i i really do feel like it is the the struggle of this damaged boy who can't quite become a man and struggles to find some version of equilibrium and some way of of self-medicating and some way of believing in a version of himself that he can live with and having that punctured over and over again mostly because he really did buy into the messaging i think he was given as a child you know his his mother said he was rotten and he will always be rotten. And I think he buys that um, in a way that his marriage to Ermgard, uh, it's, I think it's just very revealing. Like she doesn't forgive him after the beating, right? But I, just looking at their relationship before that incident, she seems to be the one person that actually accepts him for what he is and who he is. But he has all this rage toward her. And in thinking about that, the way that I can put that together is, you know, all of these family members, his mother, you know, the matriarch being the, the more, most uh, visible force here, but the, the other siblings, even his sister, who seems to rise to his defense, but upon further reflection, sometimes her defense seems to be more about making herself more visible, right, than not really, not really so much about her brother. Um, in, in not being accepted by any of these people and, and the love of his life, right, that she wouldn't marry him because her family bought into the same worldview that, his, that Hans's mother did, like that there's a class system that must be reinforced so that we can feel better about ourselves by the way that we're reflected by the people we are, you know, entangled with. But in that lack of acceptance um, thrives this version of Hans that is not living up to his potential. So he's like secretly great, you know, in, in all of these, all these insults and, and all of this dismissive behavior, there's a belief that Hans could be something greater than he is. He could be better like they are. And if Ermgard accepts him for who he is, then she's, she's in, in this sort of backward distorted way of looking at it, she's the one who's viewing Hans as less than, less valuable because he's okay just as a fruit merchant. He's okay just as an ex-policeman. She's fine with that. She doesn't need him to exceed the, the, the trappings of all of that. And since Hans is permanently unsettled with any version of himself, 
I think he he kind of thrives off of the disappointment of other people because it allows him to exist like in this potential that may or may not ever be realized. Uh, so it is that kind of material that I think this film fleshes out that I found upon second viewing fascinating and really well structured and and I no longer cared that I didn't like Hans because I don't. I mean, he's he's a shit, right? But, <laughs> you know, he's he's really kind of a terrible person. And there's a cruelty to all of these people, as you said, David. But in spite of that, um, no longer needing to like anybody, I, I just really appreciated the humanity of everybody's flaws. I think that's a, actually a very good insight is that, yeah, these are not likable people, but they're all people who've been kind of broken and corrupted by a system, an ethos, <laughs> an experience, a, a society that has really bent them and, and deformed them in, in very significant ways. And I think that is actually another uh, a connection that we can all reflect on and think about our own sort of personal experience growing up in a society where uh, even in all these days of uh, pandemic and, and, and racial tensions and and just this kind of, I, I mean, it, to me, I, you know, to speak to the political current situation, it feels like there is a lot of reckoning going on. There's a lot of engagement to say, you know, how messed up is our society really? How much of the values that we've been sort of handed as the American way uh, are really profoundly corrupted and compromised and need to be rethought and, and revised uh, as painful and as laborious and as contentious as that may be? Uh, that may give us a connection to what's happening here as we look at this little you know middle class situation of a family that is you know really at odds with itself uh doesn't really know how to reconcile or or draw together uh you know we we can look at you know hans as a man who just wants to work with his hands and doesn't really want to sit at a desk and you know push papers around um but i think there's deeper things going on there so in a sense um we may, you know, critique or even despise Hans for his uh, zealous pursuit of victimhood. And yet, at the same time, you know, the, the hand that he's been dealt, the kind of maybe temperament that he's been born into and the opportunities that have been denied him, uh, don't leave him a lot of choices. You know, he's he's been married to a woman who maybe sees it as her mission to control and and manage this man rather than actually love him or or you know uh, affirm and up build and, and and encourage him likewise you know he he sees her as his property his vassal and when she comes to the bar and pleads with him to come home and just be together as a family with uh, with her and their beautiful young daughter <laughs> he makes a complete ass of himself he stands up and he throws a chair across the room at her and she has to slam the door and duck out of there and walk home alone at dark at night where she's solicited as a prostitute i mean it's just like this completely terrible situation so his behavior is is totally indefensible and yet uh, he's kind of this trapped little rat you know in the corner and doesn't really know how to get out of this predicament that uh, he's landed in it makes me wonder if the film or at least the character because 
I agree with every single thing you guys are saying. I likewise do not like Hans at all. I find the family way, way more fascinating. And when I think <laughs> of the film, I'll be thinking of the family first. But it makes me wonder if uh, if the filmmakers had instead started the movie and made him not likable, but at least interesting and held off on the spousal abuse and held off on the very worst things that he would do until the second half of the movie, then we could get some emotional attachment to the character only to have that sort of the rug pulled out from under us afterwards. I wonder if then... David, you and I would mm-hmm. engage more with him as a character. The uh, The other fundamental problem I think I have is I don't think he's a very good actor. What is his name? I, <laughs> Hans Hirschmuller. Yeah. He is one of the worst drunk actors I have ever <laughs> seen. Like, it is, and when he has his heart attack, I have net like that was a heart attack in all caps, underlined with fourteen exclamation points. That I have n- never seen a heart attack like that before. But I, I mean, I I think Jordan, didn't you say sort of a self-willed heart? I mean, it is it is you know yeah, high it's camp a bit of melodrama. A there. He was exactly. in it to win it. Um, <laughs> but uh. I think that maybe the fundamental trouble is they so stack the deck against the character right off the bat, and then it's miscasting. Because I actually really like the rest of the ensemble. I think that uh, her name's Erm Herman. Uh, she looks a lot mm-hmm. like Barbara Bel Geddes. That's all I was thinking for most of the movie. But I thought she was excellent. I thought that the sister who we've talked about, which, Jordan, your comment about how she was saying the stuff about him more for herself than for him was spot on. That's exactly what I took away from her character as well. But, yeah, so her, kind of her chance to tell off the rest of the family as well because she's yeah. basically got it in for everybody. You know? And she can pose so well with that cigarette. I mean, I'm shocked she's not a gay icon at this point. Um, oh, Hannah Shigula? I, I kind of think she is, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will do some more research, but... I. It's it's a situation where I like all of the bell I not all of the bells and whistles, but I like many of the bells and whistles more than I like the center. And if there's no emotional center to the story, when we do have the more hysterical, melodramatic, Circean moments like the heart attack, like the moment where the woman where he tells the woman that he's uh becoming he's going into the french foreign legion and she chases him and then rolls down the hallway or the odd moment where there's there are those almost telenovela style zoom ins on their faces Mm -hmm. during a big revelation Uh, unless we're grounded in the characters those moments come off as hysterical comedy even though i genuinely and we know fassbender likes to play Mm -hmm. with it to begin with but I don't think that those moments were meant to be as funny as they are. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very interesting observation because, I, I, you know, I, I really don't know. I, I think this is still kind of a um, ham-fisted attempt to emulate Cirque. You know, now maybe there are people who find Fassbinder as being much more subtle or poetic or whatever. Uh, to me, this still feels like he's kind of jerking the chain a bit which is what i get a lot out of from his earlier films uh including 
Beware of a Holy Whore, uh, Katzelmacher, Love is Colder Than Death. I mean, he's he's basically shoving these cliches in your face. And, you know, that's, that's part of the fun. I mean, if you don't dig it, then, of course, you're going to check out or just you're going to be kind of left cold or, or even maybe a bit offended that this young, you know, snotty upstart who is trying to show you a thing or two about what he knows about movies. But also deny the cliches, right? I mean, I think he takes right. a lot of pleasure in like denying expectations, even as he plays with tropes and, and some of these sort of more plastic techniques. Um, like the, the sex scenes, I guess, are in one way um, graphic for graphic sake, but I also think they're very naturalistic and therefore very cool. Um, I love the use of nudity in this film. Um, because it feels very normal and very realistic. Um, and I love that, you know, opportunities for for more nudity and more sex aren't taken. Like, both times Hans is offered sex by his one true love, like, he turns her down. Um, mm-hmm. The first time he says this because my wife is in the courtyard. And then when he turns down the second time, he's he's in this deep depression where, you know, nothing nothing seems to be clicking for him. But I was remembering back to the first time he turned her down, and I just think this is also just him being unwilling to settle for an imitation of what he wants. Like, he can't engage with the love of his life and cheap afternoon sex. On some level, I feel like that's that's just not something he can go for all the time. Um, so it's not just that he's depressed, but from a filmmaking standpoint, it's also Fassbender not giving us that. Yeah, yeah. If he was just about the exploitation or just, you know, showing off the skin, then, yeah, he could have definitely gone in other directions. And there certainly is some of that in some of those earlier films. So there is there is some restraint here. There is some, you know, tactfulness, if you will. Uh, but he's also celebrating uh, some freedom that, that uh, certainly Douglas Sirk never had <laughs> in, her, in terms of how far you go with some of those portrayals. You guys bring up a, an interesting thought. Do you think the movie would have been more successful if he had just fucking gone for it? You know, like, the movie doesn't have a scene like in American Soldier, the last shot of American Soldier where the guy dies and then it turns into a weird sex scene. Like, had Fassbender just taken it full-on, Serkian melodrama, like as far as he could go would the film be more successful or if he would have pulled back and made it more subtle like he did several of his later films would it have been more successful it's this weird sort of towing the line for me Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. the big moments don't work because other parts are so subdued and the subdued moments you sort of just want to be bigger i guess i just don't feel dissatisfied with the the balancing act that he's actually achieved here. Um, well, fine, I mean, Jordan. No, I'm kidding. That was me trying to be <laughs> certain. <laughs> I mean, Hans Hans is cuckolded, right, throughout the entire, uh, every phase of his life, he's cuckolded, you know. Um, and there's not a lot of drama in that sometimes. Sometimes being replaced is kind of quiet and pathetic. And if he had really gone for it and made these moments a little bigger, then I might be one of those people that agreed this thing is a comedy. I, I don't really feel like it's a comedy. I, I appreciate what you're saying, Robert, that some of the camera techniques can seem kind of phony and, and silly. But I don't know. I just kind of go with it. Those, those, I can see why you would laugh at that, at some of those Zoom close-ups. Um, but I just kinda, it just kind of part, becomes part of the fabric of the film, and I just accept it. I, I kind of enjoy those moments. 
Yeah, I think the comedic aspects or the laughter is really just kind of a a, a way to release some of the nervous energy of uh, watching these characters kind of suffer in their own way. Uh, but it, you know, and 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 so yeah, there may be some moments that kind of approach camp. Um, in our show notes, there's a really insightful essay from Manny Farber that was written in the 70s when uh, you know Fassbinder was still producing films. I think he was at that point a couple dozen films into his career. Uh, Manny Farber, a great, uh, you know, kind of seminal critic of um, kind of Hollywood, but also with a kind of a, you know, a pretty informed and, and very keen critical eye, um, wrote kind of a compendium of, of several Fassbender films, but he really goes into in some depth. In fact, let me just kind of click on that here a quick second. And uh, I'll just read you a quote. This is Manny Farber's take on The Merchant of Four Seasons. It's the work of a medieval illuminator who has a command of visual ornateness, suggesting the most famous of hand-painted books, the Duke de Berry's Book of Hours. Its radiant people are faced close to the camera in what always seems a peak moment. The scene is shadowless, intensely lit. It has the ecstatic tenderness of Frangelico, but the archetypal characters, the greedy wife, generous sister, innocent daughter, mean, stingy mother, a sycophantic brother-in-law, are played by an acting troupe of vivid, dynamic hipsters. Fassbinder makes a wholesome frontal image in many ways like small frangelico panels. A man in a crisp blue and white plaid shirt hawking the pale green pears filling a rectangular cart. A humble action frozen in a shallow, still composition. This unconquering hero sells only three bags of pears during the movie. <laughs> and I, I, I'll just kind of leave that there and, and turn... Uh, listeners and you know, readers towards the, what I consider a really excellent essay. There's a lot of really good stuff written about this this film. But one of the reasons I really wanted to kind of get both Robert and Jordan and, and really eager to hear your views is that you've both had experience in filmmaking. And I, I kind of want to hear what your thoughts are, and you've already elaborated some of that, about Fassbender, the filmmaker. Because I think that's that's one of the more interesting aspects is, is how he goes about his craft. You know, Robert, you're a screenwriter. Fassbinder wrote the play here. Jordan, you've done some directing as well as acting. Uh, you know, you know how do you how do you feel uh, Fassbinder was was growing his his mastery of the media in, in both the writing and the directing? And I'll let either one of you jump in however you feel led. It strikes me that, I, and I know this is probably his five hundred and thirty second film at this point, or however many he had made previously. Um, mm-hmm. But it strikes me as he is still developing his voice, both as a screenwriter and a director, and aping from other filmmakers openly. I think more of the later films that I've seen, which of course still have the Cirque influence, but you don't think of those as Cirque influence. You're just like, oh no, it's Fassbender being Fassbender. I'm thinking mm-hmm, here mm-hmm. specifically of Fear Eats the Soul. I'm thinking of World on the Wire. I'm thinking specifically of, um, why can't I think of the name? The La- Lola. Um, okay. And here it seems less of a balancing act. Pardon me, more of a balancing act where you just want him to sort of fully blossom into the filmmaker that you know he's going to blossom into if that makes sense because you know that he's capable of great things there are wonderful scenes in this movie uh in the quote you had mentioned uh the intricate uh the fruit selling things my favorite scenes in the movie 
are where he's selling fruit or he's teaching uh the apprentice about selling fruit it's beautiful it's lovely it's beautifully rendered the writing is crisp and it's well shot it's well framed and uh i just want more scenes that feel like classic fastbender but that's just me Jordan. Well, and and well, no, I, I mean, I, I do want to kind of follow up because I think I think your your angle here of of making Hans uh, a, a more of a rounded character, uh, a man. I mean, he does have a mastery. I mean, when he is there, Frischbeerenen, you know, at the beginning there, you know, yelling out. I mean, there is a charisma there. He he does have a a talent, if you will, for hawking pears and and crying up to the fourth floor or whatever to get the attention of all the of, of all the housewives uh, who need to restock their their groceries. And so, yeah, I I, I do, and I and I respect that fact that you, as a screenwriter, would probably take a little bit more of that kind of holistic approach to say, let's let's really kind of get to know this character in in his strength in his in his mastery his attributes and then you know once we're engaged on that level with him as a little bit more of a sympathetic relatable character um, then we can follow that journey and really maybe feel it a little bit more genuinely whereas in this presentation he's kind of almost a monster from the beginning you know and so you're just kind of watching this train wreck unfold which maybe has its own appeal but maybe doesn't grab you on that same kind of human interest level i guess is that is that a fair assumption or or characterization of what you're saying there no that's fantastic it's it's sort of like the old Nora efron quote that everything is copyright everything is Mm -hmm. taken from other mediums, other stories, etc., etc. But the difference between a good storyteller and a great storyteller is a good storyteller will just copy it. And a great storyteller will copy it, but they will put their own little personal twist on it. And this has a couple of those twists, but I wanted more. Fair enough. All right. Well, my favorite shot in the film is the first time we see him selling fruit. This, you know, we're, we're introduced to the idea that, you know, he was, he was, raised by a loveless mother and and he's a loveless man and and then we're in tight close-up like we don't even know where he is yet he's he's yelling fresh pears um we later find out that he's in this sort of tight cul-de-sac of a of a of an alley but instead we're just with his his face and his voice and we're spinning so he's just continually rotating as and we spin with him and this the disorientation of this i think is a is a really smart way to to start to talk about you know how dizzying being hans you know is you know that that he that he is he's kind of like he's like the less fun incredible hulk you know like (laughs) (laughs) he's not he's not comfortable with the man he's not comfortable with the monster you know he's he's a man who who cannot um find footing so i feel like that's that's a really smart but also beautiful way to start um it is a beautiful film i i find the color palette to also be very smart it's it's all these pretty vibrant reds and pretty vibrant blues and then a lot of earth tones so it's kind of like a modified primary color palette but it also yeah is... yeah I, I saw a lot of browns a lot of uh, you know beiges but that yeah that kind of really earthy 
Yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of yeah. like, even olives mm-hmm. sometimes, but yeah, a lot yep. of these earth tones yep. that, that that then balance off of like work off of these shockingly bright red and blue colors. Like his shirt, I mm-hmm. think in your essay it mentioned his shirt, but there's blues everywhere in some in the kitchen cupboard colors. You know the the shockingly red lipstick on his wife, and then that red is also in in a lot of just other places, not just on the fruit. And the overriding metaphor of like fruit is something that you know that isn't uh, that is ephemeral like it's um it goes rotten easily and it has to be handled with care but here he has it in bulk you know um the title of the film you know suggests both that that short term of something a year you know of four seasons but also the infinite cycle like seasons just repeat and repeat so there's in the filmmaking there's just a really nice way in which all these things end up talking to each other um and i was constantly thinking about the color palette because i am more more of a, a visual storyteller i suppose um, well, yeah, and that opening scene, you know, that you just kind of nicely described, that that is the poster, right? That's <laughs> that's that's right. the uh, image that comes to mind, and it's the cover of the Criterion Blu-ray as well as the uh, original release poster, which is also included in the show notes there. Um, I want to go back to Irma Herman, if we can. Um, she passed away not that recently, uh, just maybe several weeks ago. And a friend of the show and frequent guest, William Remmers, I think did a very nice tribute to her uh, on his Facebook feed. I think it might have just been from his direct personal feed rather than one of the groups. But yeah, maybe I can look that up because he, he had some really nice things to say about her. She's an interesting character. Uh, Robert, you... you likened her to Barbara Bel Geddes. I, I, I find her as a, somebody who's got a very unique look and presence, but do uh, you want to elaborate a little bit more on, on uh, your estimation of her work here and her contributions? Well, I think it's the hair <laughs> that makes her look like Barbara Bel Geddes more than yeah. anything. That said, I think that her performance in the film is pretty incredible. Uh, I love the way that she wavers between you actually managing to empathize with her when she takes him back. And uh, at in the final act, as she's dealing with his depression and trying to push forward uh, with her life, I think that those moments are all good. And I also think that she really goes for it in the abuse scenes and the aftermath of the abuse scenes. Uh, it could easily, those moments for any actress could easily come off as, caricature or incredibly melodramatic and of course the way he shoots them is melodramatic but i think her performance has a dignity to it which i found unexpected i also really love the close-ups of her yes she has such an interesting face and the further we get into the film the more close-ups she gets and it's just fascinating to watch her think when her ex-lover becomes, in that odd twist, becomes a fruit salesman with the husband. Like, when Fassbender just plants the camera on her face, what is she thinking? Is she plotting against him? Is she furious? And it's unreadable, but there's still so much there. Yeah, yeah, maybe she's glad to get back with him because he was so good, you know, and they were interrupted in the middle. Uh, maybe she's embarrassed. Maybe she's fearful of being discovered. You, you just don't know. Uh, did either of you get a chance to watch the supplemental interview with Erm Herman that's on the disc there? I didn't. 
David, have I ever watched a supplemental feature before? I, <laughs> I don't know. Well, I will recommend it then. It is also available on the Criterion channel. It's about, I don't know, it's just a six or seven minute interview with Erm Herman. And, and if you don't know, she was basically office help. She was just a clerical support staff that Fassbender met in the kind of latter 60s. Um, and he recruited her to become an actress. Uh, she had no interest, no aspirations at all to become a, a performer and was actually fairly self-conscious about the whole idea of it, but he just persisted. He saw something in her that says, no, I really want you to be you know, in my troupe. And of course, at that time, he was just doing stage productions and just beginning to get into film. But I mean... You know, Hannah Shigula, we already mentioned her, and, and she's fantastic in this film, and she's an incredible, um, you know, part of the whole Fassbinder legacy. Uh, but Erm Herman really goes back to almost like square one with Fassbinder and his uh, theatrical and, and cinematic career. Uh, I think this is probably one of her. Uh, one of her most significant roles, uh, but she's she's certainly not done yet. But it's a very uh, interesting interview with her because she recognizes that if left to her own devices, her life would have never been what it became after she became a noted you know actor and contributor to to Fassbender's cinematic work. Um, and she still even. You know, decades after these films were made, uh, she still seems amazed that all this actually happened. So it's a, it's a really nice and very short little bit to get to know the person behind the performance here. She's really good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's really good. The, the moment that stands out for me in the film is when we see, like Robert said, there's a lot of close-ups, increasingly so as the film goes on. And when we get to this critical moment where both her and Hans learn that he can't work anymore. You can see her like vicarious, vicariously sharing in the emasculation of her husband and the shame. And then very quietly, this transitions to a kind of excitement, this, this empowerment that this is an opportunity for her. You know, she, she can have a new sense yep. of her own personhood and more authority. And she doesn't oversell it. It's very subtle. It's, it's beautiful work. Yeah, yeah, she's really getting an upper hand uh, over a man who I, I'm sure the beating is not the first time he's ever raised a fist against her or berated her uh, physically. It's unclear, or, right? Or yeah, I assume it's it's not, unclear, but yeah. yeah. But I mean, her this, response this, is pretty like succinct, though. I mean, she doesn't she doesn't behave as if this is what happens every Saturday. So. That's why I'm unclear. No, but, but she recognized when Hans came in, she told Renata to get out of there because she knew what was about to happen. And so, you know, uh, it it was hard, it was severe, but it didn't seem like completely out of character. At least that's my read. Now, that might be the, the worst beating she ever took. It might have been just the last straw. Uh, things have been escalating perhaps to some degree again you know you you can speculate or or you know retroject it that you know Hans has made a habit of hanging out with the boys and and drinking too much and uh, you know her pleading with him to come home this was not the first time she's ever had to come and you know corral him back back to the old homestead there so you know the the this is probably a pattern that's kind of reached a, a, a breaking point 
and there we go. But now that he's been compromised by this uh, heart attack and the limits on his abilities to, to stand on his own, you know, she's become more of a partner in this enterprise. She has to help, you know, run a small business, if you will. And, you know, ironically, dreadfully enough, that's what kind of gets Hans back in, at least into the early stages of good graces with his family, because now he's a businessman. He has employees. He's got two different, you know, uh, uh, marketing opportunities. He's got the rolling cart and he's got the fruit stand that uh, his wife tends to. And he can just sort of be the supervisor and, and make the money off of other people's labor. Isn't that the way to respectability <laughs> in this economy yeah. is getting other people to do the work of making money for you on your behalf? Uh, that's a little bit of a socioeconomic uh, jab that I think Fassbender's throwing in there. I had a little bit of a different reading of the abuse scene than you did, David. I don't think that he has beaten her before. How I read it was, we learn in the final moments of the film, you have the flashback to him almost dying in Morocco, right? He's mm -hmm. being held hostage, they are torturing him, he is surrendering to death, and then... Essentially, it's a deus ex machina, and the soldiers come and collect him right beforehand. So if you rejigger the timeline to how it should be, he's still mentally recovering from that. He has all of this repressed anger about mm. the fact that the other soldiers saw this. It's been repressed, repressed, repressed. And so when he comes home, he tries to drown okay. it out through the drinking. It doesn't work, and so finally he snaps on her. I don't, that's why I don't think he's done it before, and that's why I think she had such a reaction that she, such a large reaction. I'm certain that they've had big fights before, <laughs> yeah. I'm certain that chairs have been tossed before, but I am almost positive that, at least in my reading of it, the the beating was, in retrospect, a reaction to what we learn in the final moments of the film. Yeah, I buy that. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a fair debate. I mean, you know, there's no conclusive right or wrong answer to those questions. So, yeah, good conversation. And he's, you know, he's not necessarily somebody who wants to be uh, a bad guy. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, people that, that uh, are violent want to be violent. But I think another wrinkle here is uh, that makes him more interesting um, is that I think he, he does want to be kind and warm. And there's this very... Um, interesting interaction that i think all three of us have talked about you know how nice these these fruit selling scenes are and when he gets this first employee this is the man that had picked up his wife and at this point he knows nothing about that and whether he even believes that 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 is what happened or not i'm, I'm actually not sh certain about either but this is when he's he's really embracing the idea that he's now you know the businessman with the employee and he's tutoring him on how best to sell fruit and he's talking about how you need to be more warm-hearted in your voice as you sell the plums like you know say it this way you need to mm -hmm. be warm-hearted and it almost feels like hans is talking to himself as much as he is to hansel like he's he's talking to himself into being a better man so a kinder man um which is emphasized in the next scene when we see a stranger that is buying fruit from his wife say Hans seems like so friendly and and his wife says yeah he's he's so sweet so there's like it's working right temporarily before he sinks into this depression like he he willed the heart attack and now he's willing this kinder man to like birth out of that tragedy uh it, it eventually falls apart when he sees 
Harry being a much better man with much more ease, but temporarily the spell works. Yeah, yeah, he's buying into the the bourgeois dream, you know, the the ideal of, you know, what German society was sort of promoting as the path to prosperity and respectability, and, and that's kind of you know uh, reflected in his you know slightly growing acceptance around the family table when they have that little coffee and dessert scene where it looks like things are kind of looking up for Hans. So finally, our little black sheep miscreant has made something of himself, you know, uh, but it's a very short-lived dream. Do you guys think the depression is brought on by him believing that his wife was unfaithful? Um, it seems to come when Harry enters the picture, um, not not necessarily timed for anything that he may have believed happened between his wife and Ansel, but there's a there's a very dramatic change in his behavior. He starts just staring out the window, becoming more and more inert, um, can't even be a father to whatever limited degree he was capable of. That fades away. What do you guys think, what's the catalyst for the depression? Is it is it not important what it is? I think he would have found any reason to become depressed again. He's the sort of person who could not be happy for any long period of time so you have to have the moments where he appears happy but ostensibly it's the appearance of the his name's harry right (laughs) yeah yeah his 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 war buddy right yeah ostensibly it's the reappearance of harry but i think give it two or three more days and he would have gotten depressed over pudding Mm. Yeah, and and again, this is another one of those areas where Fassbender is kind of, you know, falling back or or exploiting those hoary cliches. I mean, let's go back into uh, Hans's backstory for a moment. Uh, Prior to his days as a fruit hawker, he was a police officer. So again, another, uh, you know, a a hands-on job, if you will. Uh, the kind of occupation for a short, stocky man that he could perhaps succeed in. You know, he's got a little bit of that Napoleon complex perhaps going on, but he's a man with power and authority. And yet in one moment of weakness, you know, in in which he succumbs to the advances of a prostitute that he's just arrested, uh, she offers him a few moments of pleasure, he gets caught in the act, and uh, it blows up his entire career. And in response to that, he runs off to join the French Foreign Legion. I mean, you know, that that whole uh, trope of I'm my life's ruined, let's off to Algiers, off to the French Foreign Legion is kind of a, another, um, I don't know if it's not necessarily an inside joke, but it's, it's a fairly exaggerated response to, you know, what's obviously a pretty humiliating uh, personal setback when you're fired from your job and, you know, the, the word gets out that you, you know, kind of, got caught with a hooker there well you know that's a hard one to have to explain but do you really have to run off to the desert <laughs> and uh, you know uh do that uh bow jest type of thing <laughs> i don't know i don't know did, did you guys feel like that that was a, a little bit of a uh, i don't know playfulness on fassbinder's part to kind of throw the plot that far over the edge or is this a kind of a post-traumatic stress type of thing where he's making a little bit of a a critique of militarism. I, yeah, I, I'm wondering what interpretations are of that particular plot device. Well, he didn't seem to hesitate too much about the blowjob and 
in the police station, which I thought is sort of revealing. Like that is another one of those things where you wonder, like, is this the first time this kind of thing has happened? This is the first time he got caught and fired, but there wasn't a lot of deliberation there. It's like, you want your dick sucked? Oh, sure. That'd be great. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He didn't, he didn't put up a lot of resistance for sure. And as far as going off to the, the uh, French foreign legion, I mean, I just feel like this is yet another attempt by this person to just try to find some way to cultivate manhood, you know? Yeah. 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 Uh, Yeah. I, I think that there is that compensation thing, you know, and, and even the fact that it's mentioned that his wife is probably a good you know, what, five, six inches taller than him, maybe even more. Uh, you know, there's it's, it's not dwelt upon, but it's certainly thrown out there uh, at a conspicuous moment. And uh, that's just one of those little, you know, strikes against him that, that Hans has to somehow overcome until he re- like recognizes that he just he can't handle it anymore. And, uh, and uh, as, as we've already said, he literally drinks himself to death. So, so all of these, you know, all of these things happen. Uh, but I, I think as a plot device, the fact that his, his old war buddy, the guy who literally uh, rescued him to whom he owes his life, is now his, his employee but is outperforming him um, when he probably still clings to the idea that it would have been better for him just to have died out in the desert well and there. he says at the time right like why didn't you let me yeah. die first he tells the the uh the arab soldier who has him captured like go ahead shoot me do it kill me and then and then then his uh his his uh fellow soldiers rescue him and he says why didn't you let me die so his death wish is uh, more complicated obviously yeah and i think harry's reappearance maybe you could say reawakens that because he now has to you know re yeah re-experience those memories um that that um that i'm sure must have been an incredibly vivid moment i mean if you think of yourself you know just put yourself in the situation where you are the bound captive prisoner of a hostile you know uh, soldier who is whipping you and and has got a gun drawn on you i mean you are absolutely ready to say my life is done this is it i'm cashing it in and and maybe there's a point in which you say yeah bring it on let's just get this nonsense over with and yet he's rescued from that and now he he has that kind of survivor's guilt if you will or or the burden of having to go back and make something decent out of himself and uh, if you want to follow the plot thread to this point, he's tried, he's had a few, you know, goes at it, and things just kind of keep falling apart, getting worse, and the, the pain and the misery of it all isn't going away. So, again, he, he finds the, an easy way out. Oh, the doctor says, if I drink alcohol, I'm a goner. Well, <laughs> line them up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drain those shot glasses. And, uh, and he does so with a flourish uh, by toasting yeah. all of the significant people in his life and maybe even a few more <laughs> that he dreams up out of his own imagination there. But it's, it's, it is, you know, what did you think of that well, kind I, of... Uh, can I dip back into the Foreign the Legion of, for one second? Yeah, I had a realization while you, were, while you were talking sure, about absolutely. it. Sure, um, absolutely, yeah. Because yeah. yeah, Robert mentioned the post-traumatic stress of that experience, and then you mentioned, like, that Harry's reappearance certainly would have triggered that, and that makes sense. Um and I had brought up earlier that like Hans is cuckolded 
like throughout his life. And like the first time mm-hmm. Harry cuckolds yep. him is actually, I'm realizing, in the moment where he saves him, right? Because Hans says to the Arab soldier, kill me. So there's this, you know, to whatever extent sex and death are interchangeable. Like there's this, there's this intimate, you know, exchange that's about to happen. And Harry comes in and interrupts it and he has the exchange instead, right? And so yeah. Um, yeah. also thinking about the Foreign Legion, like Germany is forbidden from having a standing army after World War II. So if you wanted to go to war, right. like this was one of only a couple of options. But strangely, like in terms of nationalism, like this is for a different country. So I, I'm not sure I'm not sure what that statement is, but it I think it speaks to something about the fractured German identity also. Mm. Yeah, and getting military training but having to do it under somebody else's flag. Under, you yeah, know, exactly. Fight fighting a war for no particular reason. I mean, right. I'm sure he didn't have any particular animus against the, you know, the Moroccan or the African opponent, whoever that was, whatever nationality that represented. He just wanted to <laughs> go out and kill people and kick ass and 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 have a license to carry weapons. Except now the tables have been turned. He's been humiliated, and even the you know the quasi martyristic death that that he thought was his destiny. Even that's been robbed from him. Yeah. <laughs> I also saw just another uh, kind of uh, allusion to Benuel's, uh, uh oh uh, gosh, uh, the Catherine Deneuve. Oh, why am I forgetting the name? Belle de Jour. Belle de Jour, of course, yeah, where Catherine Deneuve gets whipped mercilessly against a tree in the beginning of the of that film. This is a kind of an illusion. I don't know if that's a legitimate uh, Fassbinder take or not, or just uh, kind of a coincidental similarities. But I thought it more throw sex that in being there. blurred with death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, we're an hour in. Uh, I don't know. What What are some other uh, insights, or are we getting close to wrap up time? What are What are folks thinking here? It makes me curious to see. Immediately after this was his next film, the miniseries, or was it? Uh, I what came? Bitter Tears is I that think, the next I, one? I think Bitter Tears is. I can I can uh, get my spreadsheet out a second if people want to keep yakking a minute. <laughs> yeah, I like Bitter Tears of Petr von Kent. I feel as if he sort of threads the knee. It's not a perfect movie, but I feel like some of the things that he's playing with here he manages to pull off more successfully in that film. So in many ways, this was a nice little, you know, proving ground for uh, the excellence that was still to come. Yeah. Have you guys seen the movie? I have not. No, this is all of all. Well, no, I've watched uh, the first half of world on a wire. I've seen marriage of Maria Brown. There might be one other that I've fit in, but I have not seen bitter tears. And that is indeed the next one that's up in uh, season four about a dozen or so films into that lineup uh, to be continued to be con- <laughs> oh yeah absolutely we, we will be back i do think i think i think fassbender had better things ahead of him i i you know the the essay i know robert you may have a few things to say about the the essay it, oh my well god drawn. it was terrible but but, but yeah <laughs> yeah it's a little overbaked i'll say and presumptuous that. like um, it comes that, to conclusions that we assume that he assumes we agree with and i i i don't think Hans is a hero, first of all. Right, right, and and I and I don't feel like this is this is Fassbender's you know breakout 
you know masterpiece i mean it definitely it, it's a turning point and it's important and it is engaging and interesting and and you know very worthwhile and it stands alone it's not just a mere transitional work but i think there are clearly better things ahead and that he's still finding his way uh as a master of the melodrama if you want to put it in those terms really i um, and we did the episodes, uh, Jordan, were you on Beware a Holy Whore? I wasn't. Okay. Uh, I feel like Beware a Holy Whore is much more of a turning point than this. This feels like sort of setting the table for things, whereas Beware of a Holy, Beware of a Holy Whore sort of paid off all of the, the first bit of his career, right? It sort of had all of the melodramatic things that we expect. It utilized uh, that ensemble that we've come to know so well. It had Fassbender in a central role. It's, that feels more like a linchpin to me mm -hmm. than this does, at least personally. No, I, I think that's a fair argument. And I think I enjoy Beware of a Holy Whore more than this movie, just because I think there's so many amazing, fascinating things going on in that film. There's a lot to like here too, but if I had to put the two side by side, I'll I'll be, I'll go with Beware over the Merchant. Yeah, I just I guess I'm struggling with why this is so. And again, I don't dislike the movie. I think it's it's fine to good for me, but I just struggle to if it's sandwiched between Beware a Holy Whore and Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. Why isn't it either of those films? Because <laughs> neither one of them has the reputation. I guess you could say that Bitter Tears is fairly well received, but neither one has the reputation this does. Mm. And for me, both are so much more interesting. I wonder if it's just the canonical sort of telling of the tale of Fassbender's life, the fact that there was a significant... Um, pause between you know the films of 1970 uh and the films of 71 and and this particular one here and it was after his uh discovery his revelation of of Cirque and uh you know just it, you know it kind of fits a certain narrative that after he had this epiphany uh he began making films from a kind of a new perspective uh, you know that that may be as much as that's just the conventional wisdom on Fassbinder as anything else yeah nine months how how dare he take nine months so it's a better story <laughs> Terrence Malick would never take nine I months know, off good lord between films meanwhile we're on month five of the coronavirus quarantine I'm all losing our minds collectively <laughs> yes uh. I also love the yes, cover exactly. uh, that Criterion put together for this release. The, you know, Hans is there uh, inside of this outline of like the archetypal man um, that he can't quite, you know, fill up the entire space for. But it's also yep, like, yep. you know, could be the outline of a dead body. It's uh, it's pretty cool. Oh, and I like the brown paper bag, you know, the, the fruit yes. uh, wrapper there. Uh, and, and also matching, again, those earth tones of the film. It's It's a nice design. So do, do we want to slice into that essay any more brutally than we already have? I mean, it, you know, again, it just felt overwrought. The, the guy's just kind of throwing all kinds of uh, statements out there. I, I, he, does, he does seem to have some expertise. He's got the credentials. Uh, he's a professor and all of that, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those essays where, you know, you have the Criterion essays where they're like, we're all film fans here, right? Let's talk right. film. And then you have the ones that are like, 
I need to earn my paycheck and use words with at least six syllables. And yeah, it, it feels like they're, one of those. he's <laughs> elevating the film above its actual status, which again, this is not a bad movie by any means. This is not a minor, insignificant, trivial film, but it's, it's not the, the, the towering masterpiece. I, I, another couple links I'll refer uh, listeners to are uh, two contrasting reviews from the New York Times, one written in 1972, which I think was a film festival showing, and then one written in 1973 uh, from a much more dismissive critical perspective when the film kind of first entered wide release, at least starting in New York City and perhaps other places around the United States. It's a funny <laughs> review. <laughs> It really is. I mean, because she just does not get it at all, you know. And uh, but it it is fascinating just to kind of look at how this film was originally received. If you go into this looking for a straight ahead, relatable characters that you care about and um, are pulling for, you know, you you may not find a whole lot to latch on to here. But as we've I think pretty adequately discussed here, there's there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on, and there are there are fascinating pieces to to dissect and analyze and and let sink in i think this is probably a film and maybe you'll even experience this to yourself robert as they you know come back to it in a couple of years you know as you're kind of revisiting some of this uh, period of fassbender and and maybe see if it's grown on you a little bit like it i think it has with me and jordan as well i find it very interesting i don't know if i'm signed up for petra von Kant, but i find it very interesting because i purposely tried to follow along Fassbender with you. And so each one mm-hmm. of the episodes I've tried to take part in. And so it, it it has been very interesting for me to follow his maturation as a filmmaker, and I look forward to continuing to do so. That said, if I'm not back, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well... Believe me, Robert. We'll we'll get you on if if you want to be there. It's it's months from now. It's it's in that far flung future that we'll we'll get to eventually. I will and, do uh, all of them we'll except s- for Berlin Alexander plots. I will never <laughs> ever again. I speaking of PTSD, man. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, well, well, just leave us a comment in the in the Facebook thread when we get there. <laughs> that'll be that'll be plenty. All right. Uh, so, any part words guys before you wrap this up well as harry said or agreed to we are all pigs <laughs> <laughs> and i uh, did not realize this until halfway through the recording but david and jordan you guys were my very first episode downhill skier so this is you a go reunion again. between us so i'm very yeah. happy to be at another movie that we thought was pretty good <laughs> yeah Yes, it's yeah, and that, and that's 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 perfectly fine. You know, there's a lot of pretty good movies out there. <laughs> they don't all have to be knock you on your ass. You guys, I love that. this film. I love Downhill Racer. <laughs> 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 I don't care what you say. Uh, okay, well, I think we have, uh, you know, come to the uh, the conclusion here. The Merchant of Four Seasons is. Uh, in the rearview mirror now, I'll go bite into a nice, fresh, juicy, ripe pear. And uh, thank you guys for your 
companionship and conversation as we continue our journey through the, the work of Reiner Werner Fassbender. Uh, our next episode is going to be Mon Oncle Antoine, uh, one of those very rare Canadian films from north of the border there. I've got some Canadian representation on my uh, guest list coming up. It may be a little while because I've got another episode of Inside the Box coming up. Uh, we'll be recording. Woo! Trevor and I will be talking about the Apu trilogy, Satyajit Rai. Uh, incredible masterpiece uh, early works I've already had a chance to watch all three of them again I'll be delving into all the supplemental features and maybe even taking in a revisit or two before Trevor and I record in a few more days really excited to get that series up and running with episode two and then uh, Trevor and I are also going to be joining Aaron West on an episode of Criterion Now a little bit later in July as we kind of look back at the first six months of Criterion physical media releases. So I've got a little bit of catching up to do. So it might be a little while before I get another Reflections episode out there. But uh, you will be hearing from me and other platforms soon enough. Uh, Jordan, you want to give us any little updates on things you've been up to? And then I'll trick it over to Robert after that. I've been mostly working on paintings and drawings, so I'm not ready to yeah. post anything on my Instagram page right now because they're in progress, but uh, I will put them up eventually. So if you want to follow that, at Jordan Esso is where you can find that. And Robert's seen a couple of in-progress pics. So they're adorable. I love adorable. them dearly. It's the word I'm going for always with my art. <laughs> <laughs> they are astonishing. I love them dearly. Fantastic. And Robert, what you got going on these days? Um, still at my mother's house. <laughs> but um, no, everything's going fine. We are currently I am currently pitching out two TV shows and life is really quite good because you can do all of your business over Zoom. Yeah, and everybody's dealing with it. So um, I'm really happy that it's working out for you. And I still think it would be cool if we could find a way to meet up somewhere between Michigan and Ohio. So let's uh, let's see what we can do to make that happen, okay? I I'll fully it... agree. I feel like I've been teasing the show that I've been doing for Ryback and MRC for almost a year now. Yeah. And soon I will be able to talk about it. But I just <laughs> <laughs> But I am not technically allowed to yet. But soon, guys, I promise. Okay, we'll just kind of keep dangling those little tidbits out there, and we'll uh, we'll bite soon enough. So, <laughs> all right, thanks, guys. Uh, it's been a good time, and we'll be all talking soon. So, we'll wrap it up from there. Goodbye. Fand ich das Heimweh? Ja, die Sinnsucht ist mir geblieben. Oh, Mama Mia, heute kann ich dich verstehen. Buona, buona, buona Notte. Bambino mio, alles was man will, das kann man nicht haben. Buona, buona notte, schlaf ein, mein Junge. Sind so wirst du immer im Herzen tragen.